0: We're in 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 to the end of the chapter in verse 21. Hear then God's word. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that is not leading to death, he shall ask. And God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is a sin that does not lead to death. Now we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he has been born of God and God, but he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and He has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Pray with me. Father, as we finish this book... We pray that you would continue your work in us. That you would carry forward the fruit of the things that we have studied. The seeds that have been planted. We pray that they would continue to bear fruit in our, our thinking, in our minds, and in our hearts. and Especially in our lives as we pray and pursue a life that is pleasing to you. And is in accordance with the life that you have given to us. Father, as we come to your word this morning, will you make us receptive, that we may bring you honor and glory in the way that we receive and live it. We ask and pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Last week was on the topic of prayer. And as John comes to a close of his whole letter here, he is wrapping up, and I would really take What he said last week about prayer, all the way to the end of this chapter, is kind of his epilogue, his ending to his letter. When you're writing to someone and you're wrapping it up, you know, and those last few things are the things that you want to leave with them. In these days, it was the only form of communication over this distance. And so, I mean, here it was. And when they ended, here are the things I want to give you as I close. And so he closes with the issue of prayer. He wants us to be confident. In our relationship with Christ. He wants us to have this assurance of salvation. And he wraps all that, he says, in a confidence, a a boldness and an openness with God in prayer. That's the nature of the relationship that we have confidence in. It's this freedom with God to know him and to love him and to be in relationship with him and seeking everything from him. And as he does this, he moves immediately to encourage us to pray for each other not first and foremost for ourselves, right? Our tendency might be here, what he said in 13 to 16, where he says that we have this confidence toward him that if we ask anything in accordance with his will, he hears us and our tendency might be to start thinking of of our wish list, to start thinking of all those things that we want. But John immediately as he says this, when we pray according to God's will, he hears us. So pray for each other. Pray for your struggling brothers and sisters, right? Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother, you know, 15, he says, we know that he hears us. We have whatever we ask of him. If you see your brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask of God. He will pray for his struggling brother. He will pray for his stumbling brother. This is just another application of love as we've gone through. We said there are three marks of those who are born of God. And one of them was the mark of love, the social test, the, the mark of love for God's people. And we've talked of the different ways that we love each other, in serving each other, in, in approaching each other when there are differences, in seeking reconciliation, in living the gospel out with each other. And I believe as he closes here, just one more way that we do that, that we love each other by praying for each other as we struggle. And we may take turns in that where it comes out that we are struggling, or that we're willing to admit or to share with each other that we're struggling, or that we're caught struggling, caught in sin. And he says, pray for the one who is caught. Pray for the stumbler, the one who is in danger, who is weak and vulnerable at this moment. When you find someone caught in sin, when we see someone sinning, what is your temptation? What is our temptation when we see Somebody else struggling. There are temptations that come with it. One of them might be to look down on them. This person who's struggling or to feel better about ourselves, which is often the case. It is we tend to often to feel puffed up about ourselves, to think poorly about them. Maybe we even talk about them. There are a lot of ways when people are stuck in sin that we deal with it. And John says, God says, that our response when we see someone in prayer is immediately we should begin to intercede for them. That we should draw alongside of them, that we should come alongside of them and intercede for them, to fight for them, to pray for them, to encourage them. To lift them up. Now he says that we should do this, verse 16, if we see a brother committing a sin that's not leading to death. And he says that there is this sin that leads to death. And the whole question then becomes, well, what sin is he talking about here, this sin that leads to death? And the short answer is, not sure. But I'm in good company because I've been looking at all the commentators thinking, what does everybody else think? And they're all saying they're not sure. And they give a bunch of different possibilities and ideas. And I've landed on the one that I do feel fairly confident about, but you can do with it what you will and read the commentators yourself. Some of them speak of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Because in the Gospels, when Jesus is performing miracles and his enemies are are confronting him and they reject his ministry, they have to attribute his power to someone other than God. And so his enemies say he must be doing this by the hand of Satan. He must be doing this by the hand of the enemy. And Jesus warns them and says, be very careful because this, the, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And so a lot of the commentators go there. It's the only place that we have this unforgivable sin, this idea that there is even one. And I, I would suggest that it's this, to, t- to step that back. I would say the unforgivable sin, the sin that he might be referencing here, and, and they're not even convinced they're the same thing, but I think they may be loosely in this. That the unforgivable sin is to reject Christ. That even when Jesus says the unforgivable sin is blasphemy against the Spirit, the only reason they're saying that is they're rejecting Him. They're seeing Jesus' ministry. They're hearing Jesus' teaching. He teaches with authority. He's confronting their authority. Jesus is coming at them and they reject Jesus and so they blaspheme the source of His power. But the the, the, the sin that drives them there, the Original sin is going to be they're rejecting Christ. And that puts us in the context of 1 John. Because what I'm trying to understand when John says this sin that we shouldn't be praying for uh, or that, that, that he's not telling them to pray for, what is it in the context of this book that it could be that he's written to them? And, and he has written them, warning them and teaching them about false teachers who are, he calls, antichrist The spirit remember this back in chapter two and three, you know, the spirit of antichrist, and and, and the spirit of antichrist has already come, and these false teachers who are denying and who are particularly as he's coming at them again and again are denying that Jesus is the Christ. So there is this rejecting of Christ, this denying of Christ that is ultimately antichrist. Jesus, the Christ, is the one who pays for and covers our sin. And it's trust in Him, loving for Him, that covers all of our sin. And if we reject the atonement for our sin in the person of Christ, there remains no other atonement. Right? There's, there's, There's no other forgiveness. Where are we going to find it? It's in Christ. The only unforgivable sin for whatever you have done, and this is good news, the only unforgivable sin. The only one is to reject Christ. And when you have Christ. You have the forgiveness of all things. There is nothing that his blood cannot cover. So anyway. There it is. John does not say. I don't think. He doesn't say don't pray for them. He's just saying. I'm not. I'm not asking you to pray for them. I'm telling. It's not my point. He's saying. What I'm saying is pray for your brothers. Who are struggling with sin. When you, when you hear this Open boldness before God. Pray for your brothers and sisters. And then he signs off with three affirmations. That's the conclusion to last week's sermon. Draw a hard line. And he closes his letter with three affirmations. This issue of confidence in our relationship with God, which is confidence in prayer, which is, which is lifting up our brothers and sisters as they struggle. And then he leaves the church. He writes to the church. He leaves us with three affirmations. Three things that we... No, and that's how, I mean, you see him running through here. Verse 18, he says, we know. Verse 19 starts and he says, we know. And verse 20, he starts and he says, and we know. Right? There's three things here that we know. John is big on affirmations. In fact, the Bible's big on affirmations. We live in an age where making affirmations, saying things strongly. No, we believe this and not this. And we believe this and that makes that wrong. Those kind of affirmations are not popular, but they're Biblical. John pulls a few out and throws them at us tonight. He's been doing it throughout his book, but here tonight, this morning, and he throws them at them. I, I do see the light out there. He says, first and foremost, we, we know that everyone who has bo- been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. Right? Those who are born of God do not keep on Sinning, And I'm not going to repeat that sermon, but we talked about that at some length. This is one of his themes in the book that he's saying that those who've been born of God and of the Spirit of God, who've been born again and who are in a relationship with Christ, that they do not continue in a life of sin without repentance. He's not saying that they don't sin. If you go back and look at the first couple of chapters, in in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he'll forgive. In verse 10, he says, if we say we are without sin, we're lying. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, if we sin, we have an advocate. And so there's, there's this clarity, I think, here and throughout the Scripture that we will continue to struggle with sin through the whole course of our lives. And until we vacate this body and this earth, or it's made new in some way, we will struggle with sin. But he is saying the one who is in Christ lives a life of repentance. He doesn't live comfortably in sin. He doesn't live happily in sin. He doesn't like his sin. He likes holiness. He likes God. He likes purity. He likes the things that are of God. He likes and loves Jesus Christ. And so he hates his sin and he seeks deliverance from his sin. He struggles with it all his days. but He hates it and he repents of it. And then he goes on to say, and I think that what he is saying, even as he says that, is a Christian will stumble, but he will not ultimately fall away. No true Christian falls in that sin and goes down there, is lost there. The God in His kindness leads him to repentance. The God in His kindness woos us to Himself. He doesn't leave us in our sin. That's the picture that He gives as He carries this verse out, doesn't He? He says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but... This is what happens instead of him keeping on sinning. But he who was born of God, and here I believe we have the only begotten son. He who was born of God, the begotten son of God, keeps him, protects him. And the evil one doesn't touch him. Right now we have this picture of why the Christian never will not continue in his sin unrepentant. It's not because he's strong. Not because he's wise. It's not because we're all that. It's not because we have something. It's because the only begotten son protects us and keeps us so that the enemy cannot have us. Jesus tells Peter that Satan desired to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. I've interceded for you. I have protected you. And the enemy shall not have you. So in verse 9 he says, verse, chapter 3 verse 9, I, I may have put this in your bulletin there under number 2. He says, no one who is, well, you can just look back, no one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning. That's what he's saying, right? And the reason, he says, because the seed of God abides in you. That's why. Not again because of us and we're strong or we're, we're able and we can do it. He says that we will not make a practice of sinning because the seed of God is abiding in us, right? We, we have victory over the power of remaining sin not to be its slave because the power of the indwelling Christ sets us free. The one who is born of God, who is baptized by the Spirit of God, has this, as he says, the seed of life, God's seed living in him, remaining in him, abiding in him, keeping him power of an indestructible life. Look at John 10. It's there in your bulletin. John writes in his gospel, chapter 10, verse 28. He says, I gave them, my disciples, I gave them eternal life and they will never perish. Why, Jesus? Well, no one will snatch them out of my hand. The evil one cannot touch them. Right? I gave them eternal life. He doesn't say, I gave them eternal life and they might not perish as long as they don't blow it. Hear me, guys, right? I give them eternal life and they might not perish as long as you you don't do something really stupid and blow it, right? Which I'm prone to do. But he says, I give them eternal life. And the nature of that life is this. It doesn't end. It doesn't perish. And no one can take them Out of my hand. He says, if this life is in you, if you have this eternal life, which he has given to them and does not perish. He says, if you have that, he has you. No one will take you out of his hand. And the next verse in that same chapter says, and the father has you in his hand. And the father is greater than all. And no one will snatch you out of his hand. There's this double holding of the father and the son. the, The seed that abides the life that is given. It does not perish. And so the full affirmation, verse 18, is that God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. There, a beautiful picture there that we need to just touch the enemy. We are the untouchables. We are the untouchables. The evil one will not touch them, he is protected. First Peter 1 Peter 1.4, it's there in your bulletin. Again, it says we have an inheritance. An inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled. That's the eternal life. It's, it's imperishable. It does not perish. And we have this inheritance that doesn't end. It's undefiled, it's unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you. And then he says this interesting thing. You who, by God's power, are being guarded. Right? You have an inheritance that's being kept. And then you, it's being kept for you, and you are being kept for your inheritance. Guarded by His power, through faith, not our own strength, but through faith in Christ and what He has done, the seed that abides in us, an inheritance kept for you, a life that doesn't end, and you that are kept for it, which is Jude one i I've used it before, there it is in your bulletin, to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling And he's able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. You know the best two words in that verse? Three words. Math is not my thing. Not even simple math. No. He is able. Those are the best words in that verse. It's the best thing you could hope that thing would say. If he was to say, You're able to keep yourself from stumbling and you're able to present yourself on that day faultless and you better get out there and make it happen you know that would be the worst possible news that we could ever hear but there it is he is able he's able to do two things he's able to keep you from stumbling right that's what he said none shall snatch you from my hand and he protects you in the enemy the evil one does not touch him and he is able to keep you from falling and he is able not just in the short run to keep you from flubbing you know he's able to keep you from falling and to present you on that day my faultlessness on that day doesn't depend on my performance and my ability to pull it off he, he is able to present me faultless on that day praise be To the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has given us such a salvation. He is able. To do the two things we most desperately need. And desperately want. To not stumble. And to stand on that day faultless. Do it Lord Jesus. Have mercy on me. And do it. And so. The application of you haven't got five of them out of that already. Loveless says this. We are not to set our estimates. It's in your bulletin. We're not to set the, our, the estimates of our power to conquer sin according to past experiences of our own willpower. But we're to fix our eyes and our attention on Christ, on the power of his risen life in which we participate. Because we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. That's Colossians Chapter 3 in the first few verses. You have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You know, where what safer place in the universe could there possibly be to put for your life to be safeguarded? When he says, none shall snatch you from my hand. In Colossians, Paul says, your life is hidden with Christ in his hand in God. And that's where John 10, he goes on to say, and God has you in his hand. The Father has you. There's no safer place in the universe to be. Our confidence is not in our ability to stand. Our confidence is in Jesus' ability to keep us and to protect us and to bring us back and to set us free and to not let us be happy with our sin, to not love it and to leave us in it, but to, but to convict our conscience and to call us out of it and to His kindness to lead us to repentance. And again and again, He brings us home and He brings us back and He sustains and He renews us. And that is awesome news. So he says, we know. We know that anyone who's been born of God will not live in their sin because the son protects him and the evil one cannot have him. And secondly, we know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He says that we know that we are from God. I believe that he means there that we are of God. He is saying that we we know that we're his children. And that goes back to this confidence that we have in our relationship with him. It's the confidence of children. Your children should never have the feeling. They should never live under the threat that they might be kicked out of the family. <clears throat> right? The one thing about being children, it's the safe place. It's the place we know we belong. When anybody else rejects me, we can come home crying. It's the place, it's the place of the most security. My children, I tell them I love you more than life itself. You know, whatever I could do for you, I would do, right? And he says, we know that we are the children of God. And he loved us more than life itself. And he gave his life to make us those children. It's crucial to know this. He's saying as we finish this this whole letter, as we've examined our lives in, in terms of, of what it means to be in Christ and to, to taste the fruits of his spirit, uh, creating a new person in walking with Him and knowing Him and loving Him. And He says, It's important as I close this off and you head out into the world, so to speak. You need to know this. You, know, you need to know that you will not be left in your sin, that He protects you and that He keeps you from the evil one because you are His child. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The world... Gives this stark contrast, doesn't he? We know two things in this little thing. We know that we are of God and the world is not. You know, we know we are the children of God. And so we, we are not under the power of sin. And we won't remain in it. But the world lies under the power of the evil one. Right? And there it's very passive. It's not even resisting. It's not even fighting back. It lies under his dominion and his power. In John chapter 12, again in John's gospel, John says that John calls Satan the ruler of this world. I believe it's even Jesus in the course of something he is saying that says that he calls Satan the ruler of this world. He is saying that it is under his dominion. We see this. This has been throughout the teaching of the New Testament since the fall. You know the story of Jesus' temptation he gets taken out into the wilderness at the after his baptism and before his public ministry gets underway. And he's taken out into the desert, led there by the Spirit. and He's tempted by the enemy. And one of the temptations is he's brought up onto a pinnacle. He's brought up onto the pinnacle of the temple. And we read this, it's there in your bulletin, Luke chapter 4. The devil took him up there and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment. And he said, to you, I will give all of this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me. All of its authority and all of its dominion and all of its glory has been delivered, Satan says, to me. And I will give it to whom I will. Right, the kingdoms of this world, he is saying, are in enemy hands. Let me warn us in the midst of the American culture too, this includes North America. That the enemy, he says, this is enemy territory. In Ephesians chapter 2, it's also there, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world. What's the course of this world? The sins in which you once walked. And what is that? He says, you were following the prince of the power of the air. To follow the course of this world is to follow... The prince of the power of the air to love the things that this world loves. He said back in chapter two, don't love the world or anything that is in the world. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life to be all that in this world. Don't love it. Because it lies under the power of the evil, and that is to follow the prince of the power of the air. Bless you. Jesus says in John 17, He's praying for His disciples, and He says this. "Say Earn in your bulletin. I am praying for them. That is, I'm praying for my disciples. I'm praying for you, my church. I'm praying for them. He says, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me out of the world, they are yours. And I have guarded them. And so not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction whose destruction was known from the beginning. But you see all the elements kind of come together for us right here, doesn't it? He says, I'm, not pr- I'm praying for my disciples. I am guarding them. I have guarded them. Not one of them is lost. That's the promise of the children of God. I will guard them and not one of them will be lost. But he says an interesting thing, and that's just where I think it goes back to the first section on prayer, and you can do with it what you will. He says, I'm praying for them, but I'm not praying for the world, which is almost exactly what John says. He says, I want you to pray for your brothers and sisters who are stumbling and and who are caught in sin. I'm not saying pray for those in the sin that leads to death who are rejecting Christ, which is exactly what Jesus is saying here. I'm not praying for the world. And again, he's not even saying here, don't pray for the world. That's not what He doesn't even say that. He just says, that's not what I'm doing. And that's what John is saying. That's not what I'm telling you to do. Jesus is praying for his own. And then John tells you to pray for his own when they're struggling with sin. Why should you pray for them? Because where will the deliverance come from? Their bootstraps? The strength of their will to overcome? Or will it be the grace of Christ, his kindness leading them to repentance? As we pray for them and Jesus protects and delivers them. All that are His, given by the Father, not one lost. Because Jesus says, I guarded them. And so finally we know, we know that everyone... Who is born of God doesn't get stuck in their sin, but they're protected and delivered from the hand of the evil one. And we know that because they are the children of God and and they are called out of a world that is lying under the power of the enemy. But you are no longer under the power of the enemy. Do you see that? They're under the power of Satan, lying there. And you have been delivered and are untouchable by his power. You will struggle, but you must believe sin shall not be your master. You are redeemed and delivered ones. And so the last thing he says, we know, we know that the Son of God has come and He has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we're in Him and we are in His Son, Jesus Christ. And He is the true God. He is life. So keep yourself from idols. which makes some sense. He says, We know the true and the living God. We're His. We're in Him. We're in His Son. Jesus came to give us understanding, to open our eyes to see the world that lies in sin and a Savior and a Christ who will deliver us from it, who will make us into children of God and give us the power and the authority that if we believe in His name and we receive Him, that we will become His children and be delivered from that power to live lives that are pleasing to Him in relationship with Him. And he is saying, as he closes, you need to understand, life is here. It's not out there. We were talking about this some in Sunday school, the way God's people through history wrestle with this. That life is here in Christ. Life is in investing in, in His kingdom. Life is in the pursuit of Holiness and a life that is pleasing to Him. Life is engaging in His mission. Life is, life is in Christ in its abundance. He came to give us life and life abundantly. Life is in the Sun. It's not out there. But our hearts, we were saying this in Sunday school, the problem is there is an enemy within the gates. There is, an, there is that which, which, which is within us that says yes to that stuff. There's that which remains in us, that betrays us, and which must be. He says that the, the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit lusts against the flesh, and these two are at war within us, Galatians 5. All right? These two are at war within us. But he says, walk with the spirit, keep in step with the spirit, be full of the spirit, and you will not fulfill the the deeds of the flesh. You've been delivered from its power by the power of an indwelling Christ, by the power of His Spirit and of a new life. The seed of God, he says, remains in you. And it's the seed of an eternal and unending, imperishable life. And so he says, life is in the Son. Give up your idols. Keep, Keep yourselves... From idolatry. Why does he say this? Because he's laid it out there. Life is going to be found. And the danger is, and our problem is, from our earliest childhood and youth on up, we pursue life in all the wrong places. We pursue it in popularity and acceptance. We pursue it in being in, and we pursue it by having this or that. We pursue it in our careers, and we pursue it in, in a thousand ways. There are those places that we seek life, that we seek happiness, that we seek for satisfaction, anything that's not God. Those things which steal our worship. They vie for the dominance in our hearts. So John leaves you with this issue and he says, your heart is a battlefield. Jesus has come to give us understanding and knowledge. And his seed remains in you. And he he has shown us, he's given us understanding. We know him who is true. But you will be tempted to idolatry. You will be tempted to love things that are not God. You will be tempted to find your satisfaction in things that are not God. You will, Jesus says, you can't serve God and money. You'll love one and hate the other. You hate the one and hate. Jesus is saying the same thing keep yourselves from idols. And love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and all your resources and all your thinking and all of your energies and all of your stuff. Love God, invest in His kingdom and seek His kingdom first. Keep ourselves. John Calvin says our hearts are idle factories. Right? It's a phrase I love because it, it, it captures the idea that what is a factory? A factory is a place of mass production. It's where you make a lot of something. And he says, your heart is like a factory. I mean, it's churning them out off the assembly line as fast as you can box them up and ship them off. In our hearts are idle factories where we, as soon as we think we got one thing under control, you know, something else has kind of crept in and taken over. And it's, and it's kind of running my life. And it's keeping me from really giving myself to Christ and from from serving him and from pleasing him and and advancing his kingdom. There's, you know, these things that creep in and, and siphon off our life. Addictions and compulsions, fears and desires. Things that begin to function like gods in our lives. And those who talk about these things talk of functional deities. Functional deity, you would never say you worship it, but it functions like a deity in your life, meaning that if you really look at it, it has control. That fear has control more than God. You know, that desire has control more than God, that habit, that addiction has control more than God. It can be a good thing or a bad thing, anything. It just has to do with the place that it holds in our lives and the power that it has over us. The central place and the power that it has. could be a good thing or a bad thing. From the car you drive to the house you live in. From your children or your grandchildren. Your spouse. Shopping. Exercising. Gaming. Sexuality. Our work. Our need for pleasure. Our need for approval. Our need to be right. Our need to be in control. You know, what is it that drives your decisions and controls your happiness? All these kind of things. Jesus on the throne. John's final thought is to make us aware there's a battle. And we have to keep our hearts from the idolatries that are being cranked out in us as we live in this world that lies under the power of the evil one and is constantly filling our minds with lies and deception. The Son of God came, he says, to give us understanding. So he says it's a life of repentance. Right back to the first affirmation. We know that anyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning because God is protecting him and his kindness is leading us to repentance. So there's this life of repentance. And that's the life we deal with idolatry. A lot of what we're repenting of over and over and over again is our idolatries. I've let this get too big in my life. I've let this get too much control in my life. I've let this thing tell me what to do for too long. And I need to start doing what God says to do. Right? And these things that come up, and so we have this life of repentance. To cast these things down, that God might reign supreme. So we've stacked up a number of applications. Let me run them by you as we close. <clears throat> At the beginning we said, I'm asking, Will you thoughtfully and faithfully pray for those in your life who are struggling with sin? Will you step back and not feel superior and not look down on them and not talk about them, but begin to pray for their deliverance, believing that God won't leave them in their sin, but that His design and His plan is to save them? Will you relinquish your trust in your own ability to keep yourself and to begin to trust in the One who protects you? Will you take up the mission of Christ to bring His gospel to a world that lies in the power of the evil one? Will you take up His mission? Will you refuse to serve the functional deities in your life, these things that have just gotten too big or taken too much control? And will you, through repentance, cleanse your heart of idolatries to serve the true and living God? Will you give your worship? Will you give your heart? Will you give your life to the one who has delivered you From the power of the evil one. And keeps you by that same power. Pray with me. Father in heaven we confess and we know. That above all else we need you. We thank you and we praise you for these affirmations. That you do not leave us where you find us. And you don't leave us in our sin. But you protect us and you keep us from the evil one. And you have made us your children. And delivered us from a world of darkness. And you have made us to know the one true and living God. That we are in you and that we are in your Son. And Father, we would be delivered from our idolatries. Into a life of worship. True and unmixed. Father, may this be our daily battle. To keep ourselves from idols. As we pursue our love and our worship of you. We ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.